Hello and welcome to this week's Hong Kong Heritage, where it's my second instalment this month of celebrating 25 years of the programme. I'll then do a couple of similar programmes of heritage highlights later in the year. This week, I'm out and about. At Tunmen, I go inside Hong Kong's only dragon kiln, which is 20 metres long and used to glow red on the hillside when it was fired. I have a tour of North Point Market, attend a Sikh sports event, have afternoon tea at the Helena May and meet a man who was born in Stanley internment camp during the war, among other snippets. So let's start at the Helena May with an interview from 2009, where I'm talking with Joan Campbell, who came to Hong Kong in 1954. And when I was chatting with her, had been teaching for 55 years at the Carol Bateman School of Dance, situated in the Helena May. The Helena May is a ladies' club in Central, first established in 1916. Joan had been a member all these decades and also lived there as a young woman when she first arrived from Britain. was real afternoon tea and everybody knew each other that came in to sit down and the governor's wife came at least once a week to change her books to have coffee or to have tea with us and uh, it was a very social elegant place and to go down these stairs well I guess as a, an inmate from here it was it was quite fun because we would have dinner downstairs at 7 o'clock in the evening. We finished ballet at 6 and they would lay the tables. And at 7.30, they would have dinner at night. And, of course, we would sit at allocated tables. But if we had a boyfriend coming, we were to sit in the outer part. where, And everybody would turn as soon as, oh, Rick's coming down. But you felt like a queen coming down. And, it, you know, it was just I don't know it was unbelievable and you know we had a stage also at the Helena May no where I didn't know piano, that where the piano is now that was all a stage and we actually gave performances there don't know her background but she was from Shanghai and she had two sisters who were also in dance and um, she was married to a man called Pip Howell who was the secretary of the SPCA and the Hong Kong Kennel Club hence my involvement with the Hong Kong Kennel Club. She was very slender, blonde hair, I believe she taught Margot Fontaine and she was just interested in dance really she started the school and when I got here I, I've never really known what age she was because she never aged as far as I was concerned in the 15 years I knew her she looked the same. Joan Campbell at the Helena May. 
Five years ago, I headed up to Tunmun to hear about a campaign by a group of potters and other conservationists to save the Castle Peak Dragon Kiln. They succeeded in saving the kiln, but not the school next to it, which they hope to use as a workshop and education centre. The Castle Peak Dragon Kiln is 20 metres long and was built around 1940. It used centuries-old technology developed in Guangdong. The kiln was last fired in 1985 and would have been an impressive sight. The kiln filled to the roof with sagars, pots that were used to contain other clay items to be fired and glazed. The kiln foreman had to get the temperature exactly right from this wood-fired kiln as there was a lot financially at stake. The temperature could be up to 1,300 degrees Celsius. I went inside the kiln with Liz Lau, part of the Dragon Kiln Concern Group, and also sculptor Louis Lowe Sai Kern, who, as a young man, came to the kiln to fire up his creations for 10 years. Actually, here is the front or the first opening for loading the kiln. And you see this way is where all the wood was loaded and fired, and the heat come all the way long from here up to the upper part of the kiln. So we're in the and first chamber of the kiln. First chamber, yeah. And the first chamber usually is the highest temperature. The upper part at the lower temperature because the air drain a lot over there and cool down. When I used to fire, I put it in the first chamber because it's the highest temperature and where most of the beautiful glaze can be made. And also this chamber is an area where the reduction atmosphere was created. Reduction atmosphere helped to bring beautiful color glaze. And up there is oxidation. You won't get the beautiful glaze. It's interesting because we're standing here, or we're half crouching on a slope. So behind that grid there is where they would have stacked up the wood yes, and started the burn. One of the distinctive elements of a dragon kiln is, is actually, it's all one chamber, but they look at it in terms of zones. And because it's one chamber, that's why the heat from the bottom goes so quickly to the top and they can fire really quickly. There are other types of kilns that are also on a slope and they do have chambers. Those tend to take a lot longer because each chamber gets hot and then it passes its heat up to the next level. And so these ones, they, mm -hmm. they said they perfected to have these fired in about 12 to 14 hours, which is incredible because most kilns of this size would take two, three days of firing to get from zero degrees up to the 1300 and then for it to cool back down. So apart from the wood that's behind the grid behind me, this whole dragon kiln is one big firing chamber. Exactly. Yes. Wow. Yes, that would be intense. So you could imagine... I mean, we're looking at it, it's about, I don't know, 25 to 30 meters. Can yeah. you imagine? We can almost stand up in here. So it's almost a human's height. It's more than a human's width. So this chamber can house tens of thousands of, of utensils. If you talk about pot mm -hmm. lids and, and, you know, soup pots and wine jugs. And one firing is an intense thing because for them, it takes so much energy and materials and cost to do one firing that it's, you know, they actually pray to the kiln gods before they fire it because they need to make sure it goes well. Otherwise, they, they could lose their business. So how many people would have worked in the kiln? In the kiln, they helped to bring in things. So maybe four to five people help stacking up from the front to the back. There should be another door on the other side. Yeah, they might do a firing uh, three, four times a year. The whole production team, I think, around here, at its height, was maybe 15 people. And because they will monitor the whole process, when they feel some parts, the fire is not as expectedly high, they will add small chunks of wood from this hole here and fill up 
the temperature. So that is the way they are operating. So it's almost non-stop through the firing process. They have to monitor the temperature. They check the temperature by seeing the colour of the flame. Lewis Lowe and Liz Lau there. Sharpo Village is situated on Lama Island, and I went there with archaeologist Mick Ather. Mick and his wife, fellow archaeologist Kenneth Yip, are the authors of Piecing Together Sharpo, Archaeological Investigations and Landscape Reconstruction, an analysis of the varieties of human activity in Sharpo spanning more than 6,000 years. So what Mick was talking to me about here was one of the key threats in more recent years, which was pirates. Well, yeah, we, we know from the historical records that certainly in the Qing dynasty and, and in fact earlier, piracy was a major issue. So the villages that were founded on Lama, beginning with in this particular area uh, near Shapo at Wanglong, when the Chao clan came in from Aberdeen originally, the villages were founded some considerable distance in from the coast in locations that would have been invisible for anybody passing by on boats. So the early villages in this part of Hong Kong, both in the Wanglong Valley, beginning with the village of Wanglong, which was the earliest foundation of the Chao clan, was set well back from the coast. As things became more stable, later in the Qing Dynasty, we find villages like Sha Po being set up in very prominent locations, very close to the coast, on top of the back beach, because by that stage, things are more stable. The Chinese maritime customs are patrolling the area, and of course, after 1841, we also have the Royal Navy in the area, and between them, they managed to suppress the piracy quite effectively by the early 19th century, although it did continue to occur well beyond that date, but, but in, a, in a, a much lower way. So piracy would be involving other ships, or they would do these coastal raids, and, and what would they be doing? That's just, we're, we're going to nick your livestock? Certainly we, we have uh, records of vessels being taken, people being taken hostage, and materials being removed from ships on the open sea. But we also see, if you look at some of the early villages around the coast of Hong Kong, we see quite a lot of fortified architecture. Mm. For example, if we go to Muiwo, some of the early villages there have got towers, fortified towers, and I think there are, they are much more to do with piracy rather than to do with uh, fighting with other local villages. In this area around Sharpo, what were the key eras that you were finding artefacts from? These backbeach sites tend to be multi-period, so they tend to have many layers of human activity represented going from the middle Neolithic right through to World War II. But in particular at Shalpo there are three main periods that we found really compelling evidence. And that was in terms of the Bronze Age, where we have evidence for certain activities on the back beach and different things happening on the plateau. So we have a whole, you could say, cultural landscape, an ancient cultural landscape where people are doing different things in different areas. That's very interesting. Later we have this very good evidence on the back beach for the 6th dynasties to Tang, so 5th to 10th century. And then we have the 6th dynasties to Tang period where we have all over Hong Kong this widespread coastal industry, virtually every back beach site, which to be quite honest behind nearly every sandy bay in Hong Kong there is a back beach site or was originally a back beach site. And virtually everyone that's been excavated has turned up evidence for this 5th to 10th century industrial activity involving these 3 meter diameter clay cylindrical ovens or kilns. In many cases, the larger sites have got up to 15 of these structures aligned quite often in a couple of rows. So this is a, a really substantial industry. This is creating a, an experience of Hong Kong at that time. Traveling through these coastal waters, there must have been smoke rising from every beach well this industry was going on and the fact that it's on such a scale and we have historical references to this imperial salt monopoly 
because salt was an extremely valuable commodity at that time. So we seem to have in Chapo one quite important site where that activity is going on. Sushma Rana is an old friend of mine in Hong Kong. We've known one another for 25 years. She's the daughter of a Gurkha major who served the British Army in Hong Kong for more than 30 years and is now retired in Kathmandu. Sushma was born and grew up in Hong Kong and speaks Cantonese, Nepalese and English. We had a walk around what we could call Little Nepal in Jordan, an area around Temple Street and Battery Street where you can find Nepalese street stalls, provision stores, restaurants, beauty salons and jewellers. So Sushma, on a rainy day, we've just come into a Nepalese provision shop. This is called Paspati Shop. And it's in Jordan? Near the Temple Street. So now we're just looking at the shops. They have all sorts of stuff, lots of grocery. Lots of and you can food. also get your air tickets here, did you say? Yeah, 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 you can. So we've got lots of dry goods along here? Yeah, we've got lots of dry goods. We have something here called tura. It's actually beaten rice. And what we used to do is my mum would give us tea, a proper cup of tea with milk and sugar. And what we do is we would put the the beaten rice into the tea and it will soak it up and we would eat it okay. so that was like a good snack time or what we like tea time and there's a lot of Indian products as well like rasgulla and they're just like Indian sweets with thick syrup they have a lot of lentils different kind of lentils so you've got beans and peas and there's a lot of other like pressure cooker Nepalese people love using pressure cooker because when you cook it, uh, the food just cooks a little bit faster and saves a lot of time Yes, because I was hearing from another Nepalese, and she works uh, as a beautician, that she likes having sweet potato, boiled sweet yes, potato for breakfast. Sweet. Yes, but so she probably use it probably uses a pressure cooker as well. Yeah. Saves a lot of time and energy. You've been telling me, Sushma, that your mum is a really good cook. Um, can you tell me some of her recipes or the things that you like to eat of hers? Oh, I love the cell routine she made. They're like, we call them Nepalese donut because it's just easier to explain to other people what they are. Yeah, they're just made with rice flour, water, sugar or honey, or and we put in ghee. But I think it just like uh, varies from different family or, you know, like what your taste buds are. So it's a slight sort of like a sweet rice bread? A sweet fried, yes, yeah, fried bread, yeah, yeah. And how would you eat it? You can dip it in tea, is good, or you can just eat it on its own, or you might have some like side dishes on the side. That's what you normally get when you go and visit family or relatives, and if they make it, that's what you would have, like side dishes. Sushmarana there. Medical products businessman George Coverley was born in Stanley Civilian Internment Camp in September 1942 during the Japanese military occupation here in the Second World War. So we're now in the uh, military cemetery in Stanley where many of those who died during the internment in Stanley were buried. It's also uh, where my great-great-grandmother is buried and her grave is here. I was told by Mabel Anslow that she used to wheel me in a makeshift pram into the cemetery as part of taking me out because my mother was very ill and couldn't look after me. So there was a group of 
young ladies who were deputed to look after me, including Mabel, also May Ride. And the first time I ever met May Ride, and I didn't know who she was except that I knew she was the wife of the former vice-chancellor of Hong Kong University. And I sat down next to her and she said, the last time I saw you, I was bouncing you on my knee. And I said, how did that happen? And then she explained the, <laughs> the, 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 the background. But this was a place that a lot of the internees came because they were allowed to come in here. And it was a place where they could be a little bit quieter. They could engage in some amorous activities, which I believe did go on. But it was a nice place of peace for them. It just got them out of the, the main area of, of the prison compound, or at least the prison complex. Tell me about your connection with Stanley Internment Camp. Okay, well, I was born in Stanley Internment Camp. I was one of 52 uh, who were born in Stanley Internment Camp, and I think I was about number 10. Of course, I've met many of them who have been born there and some who weren't born there but who were interned as very young kids. So can I ask, what year were you born? So I was born in September 1942. The last one was born in 1945, just before internment ended. Now, when we're standing here on a, a lovely sunny day, we're actually next to a large stone showing actually some military people who are interned here. Now, do you have any special connection to Stanley? Well, apart from being born in Stanley and apart from the fact that my great-great-grandmother is buried here, that's my connection to Stanley. My late wife was also born in Stanley because her father was a civil servant and he was the administrative officer for the prisons department. So in that respect, as a family, we had a lot of connection. Uh, we both started off here. So you're born in September 1942. It must have been very challenging for your parents to have a baby in internment camp. Well, it was a deliberate decision, my mother told me. What was fortunate was that my father didn't have to fight because he was selected among the bank employees to stay in the bank to keep it going through the hostilities. So this was uh, Hong Kong Bank? Hong Kong Bank, yes, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he was a uh, Hong Kong Defence Force and all the rest, um, so he was all prepared to fight, but he didn't. And as a result, then, they were both reunited at the end of the hostilities. And my father had had to stay in the bank, and they had camp beds there, um, and they, they lived in the bank for those 14, 15 days. And my mother was an auxiliary of voluntary nurse at Bowen Road Hospital. Uh, together with May Ride, that's how she knew May Ride. So when everything stopped, they basically first met each other on the Murray Parade Ground, where uh, everyone was assembled to be marched down to Western District to be billeted in uh, what they were told were hotels. And my mother doesn't tell me, but she told for an interview, um, and I had a transcript of it for the Hong Kong Bank history, and she said when they got to the hotels, they looked around, they couldn't find the dining room, and they said, where's the dining room? And the staff said, it's not that kind of hotel. So she said, I realized we were in the brothels of Hong Kong. She said, that's where my son was conceived. And subsequently, I have actually, through Tony Badham's website, discovered which room it was and which hotel it was. So I can track myself from my very, very earliest beginnings. Ophelia Chan is a specialist on herbs and skin care and has a business called Herbal Bliss. She took me around North Point Market, which is an old one and full of stalls that reflect its heritage of communities that came from different parts of China, including Shanghai and Fujian. Uh, Fukinese people like uh, fish balls a lot. So we have different types of fish balls, and um, you, you saw that uh, kind of a small brick-like uh, <laughs> uh, fried fish balls. They're the, uh, the same. Um, before, um, they use uh, seafood, a particular kind of fish, 
to mold it. But now, um, because um, the the supply of really fresh seafood or fish from the ocean is dwindling, so um, they use um, this kind of farmed fish. Yeah, but um, anyway, it is a traditional treat. Yes, it's, it's yeah. a very, uh, very, very traditional stall here, as you say. How do they actually make noodles? Um, actually, it's uh, very simple. The basic ingredients is just water, salt, and wheat. Of course, it depends on different gradings of uh, wheat and where they come from. And uh, for example, if you see those uh, with yellow colors, um, it is uh, they have the eggs added as well. And then you just put it through a machine. Uh, yes, they, you see inside. They have all these traditional um, machines uh, which operate for at least uh, several decades. And also the layers of trays made from bamboo to dry the small noodles. So it is uh, really um, very fresh. You make it on the spot. <laughs> yeah. So do you, do you buy fresh uh, fresh noodles rather than... Uh, definitely. Yeah, packed ones. Uh, they, uh, definitely. Not the instant noodles. Or just get out the way of a man carrying a whole load of uh, boxes. I do like this. It's all on the go, isn't it, Ophelia? But uh, here next to the fish stall... Um, is it or fish shop rather than just a stall? Um, is in fact a traditional. What would you call this? A it was a dai pai dong, but it's also got some traditional cakes at the front. Yes, actually, it's a small eatery selling the traditional food kidneys. They have um, two main kind of food. One is uh, you see from the outside in a cupboard is um, the uh, traditional food kidneys cakes and pastries. Um, I, uh, some of them are sweet, some salty. They're really plain. Um, some fried. And uh, you have seen, all, you can see all sorts of colors: the, the white and the yellow, and um, um, even some brownish, uh, pinkish in color. So, but inside, um, it is a very interesting breakfast area. Um, the lady cooked about eight to ten dishes every morning. Um, she woke up at uh, around five in the morning and um, uh, present the congees. And um, especially there is a nice uh, delicacy of sweet potato with congee, which is a famous oh, sounds <laughs> congee. Very nice. Yes, good and, way uh, to start the day. Yes, and then you can pick your choices of the dishes. You can uh, eat vegetarian or uh, some fish or some pork, etc. So it's a traditional Fukinese uh, breakfast, which you find very rare in Hong Kong. Hello, my name is Gurdev Singh. I'm in Hong Kong for 45 years. I was working in the Hong Kong government and I just retired two years ago. So I'm now doing the voluntary work for the Sikh temple in Hong Kong. And so this event today, what, what's the name of it here in Happy Valley? Uh, actually, this is a Visaki Sports Day. Visaki is the second month of the Indian calendar. So during this month, Sikhism was baptized. So in 1699, our 10th Guru, Guru Gobind Singh, he baptized the Sikhs. So on that day, we, every year we celebrate this day. So in Hong Kong, we hold the Vesaki Sports Day. And that's one of several events, isn't it? Yeah, it's a several events. Today is the Sports Day. Yesterday, we took the, our holy book to Chiang Kuan No, and there was a celebration. There was over a thousand people attended that ceremony. Why Chiang Kuan No? Uh, normally on uh, different festivals. So the people, they are living far away from the temple. Some are living in Tong Chong and some are living in Chiang Kuan or other new territories. So it's on a rotation. Uh, sometimes we go to Tong Chong, sometimes we go to Lai Chi Kok, and sometimes we go to 
Jonkan also. Whenever they invite us, we go there. And today, I mean, you couldn't be blessed with better weather here at Happy Valley. I mean, everybody's, as long as uh, everybody watches it with the suntan lotion, we've got about 27 degrees Celsius here, and uh, lovely sunshine. And we've got uh, some of the boys out uh, practicing, and you have plenty of girls along also for the sports. Yeah, so the weather is a bit hot today, so it's a bit sunny. <laughs> But it's lovely, it's not raining. <laughs> so for the sports day, it's okay. The people can have a lot of sweat here. So I hope they will enjoy the sports day today. What kind of sports throughout the day? Uh, today we'll have a hockey, football, with a tug of war, short put, and there will be races for the, for the three years to 60 years old. So the races will be a five year group. For example, there was races from three to five years and then the five to eight, then eight to 12. So we make different groups and we will also have the couple three leg races. So there's other musical chair. There's a three legged races. Yeah. <laughs> so we invite the couples to have a three leg race. So we also have a musical chair and there will be a, a lot of uh, re uh, games for the everyone to participate. What will you be taking part in? Uh, actually, I'm organizing the, this event. I, maybe I won't get any time. Before I used to play hockey, but uh, now today I won't play. So you're organizing the day? Uh, yeah, today I will be the main organizer here because uh, most of our committee members, uh, they are busy in the temple for the religious ceremonies. So I'm here today to organize this sports day. So what's going on at the Sikh temple at the same time? Actually, at, uh, in the Sikh temple, we are also holding the baptist ceremony as well. We invited the five high priests from India. So every year in Hong Kong, we also have a baptism ceremony. It's a once a year. So today there's a, there'll be a ceremony in the Sikh temple and then uh, there will, some people will be baptized there. 19th century photographer Ah Fong founded the Ah Fong studio in Hong Kong and was active here from the 1870s onwards. Here I talked to Jonathan Wattis of Wattis Fine Art, who was showing some of Ah Fong's work in his gallery. Their costumes in this are beautiful, and in this one, if you look at their feet, they've actually got regular-sized feet. Yes, you're right. Also, another thing that you look at with these studio photographs is the carpet, because we get numerous portraits over the years, and the carpet often can help you oh, yes. define which studio it yes. was from. So there would be other Chinese studios doing these portraits. And if, if you don't know who did what, the, the carpet can help you if you can eventually attribute something. So we always look at the carpet as well. He stages it with models, and then people write these rather decorative floral captions. And you've got another one over here showing Cantonese amateur musicians, and this is five men with different instruments. And on the other wall over there, we have various groups as well. That was him staging photographs to be taken, to be printed out and sold for people who would then come to his studio. The other side was the portraits. Now, the people could go into the studio and have their portrait taken. If you go over here, this is called a cabinet card. Here we have a Scottish Freemason with all the jewels and regalia on him. He's a man of rank and he's standing with one arm over a chair, another hand on the Bible, and he looks rather good with his sideburns, uh, side whiskers and moustache. On this side, you have this album in print of him, and on the other side, you have this wonderful printed card. Oh, very decorative. Which 
which has, by appointment to Sir Arthur Kennedy and His Royal Highness Prince Alexis, who was a Russian aristocrat who came to Hong Kong in the early 1870s. And basically, I think this is between sort of 1872 and 1876, 78, this patronage went on. And, and so it, it, you got people coming in to have these cards made. So typically you would pose for the portrait and you would order five or ten. So you'd get five cards and your portrait would be stuck on one of these cards and you would have five or ten of them to pick up at a later date. Jonathan Watt is there. I hope you enjoyed these segments of past programmes to mark my 25 years producing and presenting Hong Kong Heritage. I'll highlight a few more in the second half of this year. Thanks for listening and join me next week on Hong Kong Heritage. <laughs>